Hello and welcome to this latest episode in our Herbert Smith Freehills Public M&A podcast series. My name's Antonia Kirkby and I'm joined today by Greg Mully, who has a particular interest in distressed M&A. Today we're going to talk about distressed public M&A transactions and the differences we see on a transaction where the target is in distress. Clearly the COVID-19 pandemic has hit a huge number of businesses and they'll be exploring various options to repair their balance sheet or protect their business. Those options might include putting itself up for sale, that is a full takeover, or finding a cornerstone investor to take a significant stake in the company. In either case, if the company falls within the remit of the UK takeover code, both of those options may mean that the code is engaged and that may have an impact on the transaction. So today we're going to talk about how the code might apply to and impact a transaction when a company's in distress. Greg, shall we start with a quick reminder of which companies and transactions are subject to the UK takeover code? Thanks very much, Antonia, and sure. So in broad terms, a public company incorporated in the UK, which is listed on the main market of the stock exchange or listed on AIM, is going to be subject to the code. Any other PLC which is incorporated in the UK, which has its central place of management in the UK, is also going to be caught, even if its shares aren't traded. And the same applies to companies incorporated and listed or centrally managed in the Channel Islands or Isle of Man. On occasions, a private company can also be subject to the code, for example, if its shares were previously listed. And at the moment, there's also a concept of shared jurisdiction if a company is incorporated in the UK, but its shares are traded on an EU market or vice versa. Uh, But that concept's going to end when the Brexit transition period ends on 31 December. So, So I don't think we need to go into that today. So I guess the the key point is if your company is subject to the code, the next question is whether a transaction triggers the code provisions. Uh, And the starting point for that is the code's going to apply whenever there's an acquisition or consolidation of control of a code-governed company. And as we know, for these purposes, control is treated as being acquired at a 30% threshold, so 30% of the target shares. So the code can be engaged if a company, as you point out before, Antonia, is seeking a cornerstone investor. So moving on to distressed situations in particular, are there specific provisions in the code that apply on a takeover of a distressed target? Well, well, not specifically in that situation, although both the code and the panel do recognise distress in certain circumstances, and and we can come on to that if you like. What, What we do see is certain themes and tactics being used by companies in distress. And what do I mean by that? Well, the most notable one of those is the so-called formal sale process or FSP under the code. And so what's an FSP? Well, it's akin to a private company auction. And although this isn't designed solely for distressed companies, it's often used by companies facing financial difficulties. Um, It's got a number of attractions, and and just to pull out two, uh, one would be the potential offerers for the company uh, in an FSP situation don't have to be publicly identified, and the put-up or shut-up regime doesn't apply. So potential bidders have more privacy and time to put together a potential bid, so that's attractive for all parties. 
in, in, in attracting potential bidders. And the second one I'd draw out is the target can, and this is as an exception to the prohibition on offer-related arrangements between the target and the bidder. The target can agree to pay the bidder a break fee if the transaction fails. Thanks, Greg. And um, if anyone wants to know more about FSPs, uh, we discussed them, in fact, in an earlier episode in this public M&A podcast series. So a good example of a company in distress using an FSP is Flybe. It launched an FSP in November 2018. And then in January 2019, a consortium, including Virgin Atlantic, announced a recommended offer for it. Aside from the relaxations afforded by the FSP, which you've just mentioned, Greg, did we see any other code provisions being relaxed on that transaction? Yeah, it's a good example. Um, Thanks, Antonia. And and no, there's nothing written in the code, but the panel's generally very pragmatic and willing to be more flexible if a target's in distress. So on the Flybe transaction, where Flybe was obviously in severe financial difficulties, The panel allowed the target and the bidding consortium to enter into a £20 million bridge facility agreement to support Flybe's ongoing working capital and operational requirements pending completion of the offer. What happened was then four days after the offer announcement, Flybe announced it hadn't met the conditions for the bridge. And without it, Flybe was going to have to commence insolvency proceedings. So uh, Virgin Atlantic and Flybe agreed that Virgin Atlantic would buy the assets of Flybe immediately, so before the offer completed, and entered into a revised bridge facility. Now, the panel allowed both the bridge facility and the asset sale agreement, despite them being offer-related arrangements. And that shows that the panel's prepared to be flexible where a company's facing insolvency. Um, And I think in that regard, it's interesting that the panel noted in its 2019 annual report that where the executive was confronted with a choice between the strict application of the code on the one hand and allowing a transaction which would avert the company going straight into administration, it it said the following, and and quote, uh, the ability of the executive to make such a decision out of hours over the course of a night and to allow the company to be saved is a testament to the pragmatic and responsive regulatory system that the panel espouses. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it, that they are prepared to be flexible in that sort of scenario. What about the conditions to an offer if a company is in distress? Will the panel allow specific conditions relating to insolvency? Yeah, uh, you do see insolvency conditions in offer announcements. And in fact, they're pretty much included as a matter of routine. Uh, We've also seen bespoke insolvency conditions included. Uh, That was done in the Flybe offer and on the Hanover bid for Brady. Uh, But that said, and and as you know, including a condition to an offer is one thing, uh, being allowed to invoke it's another. This is pretty rare that is invoking a condition And the only example that springs to mind where the panel did allow an insolvency condition to be invoked was on the Rich Pro Investments offer for ASA Resources Group. That was back in 2017, and that was where the target went into administration and the panel agreed the bidder could lapse the offer by invoking the insolvency condition. But as I say, pretty rare. So what can a bidder do if a target situation deteriorates during an offer? 
Yeah, well, that's pretty tricky because, as you know, the panel sets a high threshold for invoking most conditions on an offer. Uh, and, and just to remind uh, everyone, it must be of material significance to the bidder in the context of its offer. And if the condition is a material adverse change, MAC condition or something akin to that, the panel's only going to permit a bidder to invoke that sort of condition if the circumstances, and again, this is a famous phrase, strike at the heart of the transaction. And we saw the panel reiterate uh, earlier this year how high that bar is on the bid for Mossbros, where the bidder sought to invoke a MAC condition and various other conditions to the offer. Uh, and that was all because of the impact that COVID-19 was taking on the company, but, but the panel didn't allow it. Uh, so if, if the target is in financial difficulties and the bidder's concerned about that, I guess the only thing you can think about is a bespoke condition drawn to the attention of shareholders up front. Uh, it's not guaranteed, but it's more likely to be successful than a generic boilerplate condition. Uh, but, but as I say, there are going to be difficulties and it's not even certain then that the bidder will be able to invoke that condition. Yeah, I, th I think the uh, Mossbros decision is a good illustration of just how hard it is to invoke a condition to an offer. And we actually discussed that panel ruling about the Mossbros case and conditions to offers more generally in an earlier episode in this podcast series. And it's also just worth mentioning at this point that we are actually expecting the panel to publish a consultation paper in the coming weeks about invoking conditions to an offer, amongst other things. We'll obviously do a podcast on that when we see it, but I certainly don't expect the panel to make it any easier to invoke a condition as part of those proposed rule changes. So moving on now, what are the code implications, Greg, if a company's just seeking a cornerstone investor rather than a full takeover? Thanks, Antonio. The key issue under the code here is Rule 9. And as you know, if a person with its concert parties together acquires 30% or more of a code-governed company, the starting point is that that person has to make a mandatory offer for the company. If the company issues the shares to an investor, however, it's possible for that to be whitewashed. And what does that mean? That means that the panel will grant a waiver from the obligation to make a mandatory bid, provided the independent shareholders of the company approve the transaction. So if a company is looking for a cornerstone investor to come into the company, and that cornerstone can come in either on its own part or part of a wider fundraising, and the investor will have a stake of 30% or more, it will have to seek a waiver from the obligation on the investor to make an offer. And that's covered in the notes on dispensations from Rule 9 and Appendix 1 of the Code. They set out the procedure on how to do that. One of the key things here is early consultation with the panel. I think it's also fair to say that it's important to check that there haven't been any disqualifying transactions such that a waiver won't be granted. For example, if the investor or persons acting in concert with it has acquired shares in the 12 months before the publication of the whitewash circular, if negotiations or discussions about the possible investment had already started at that point. Yeah, and it's also important to remember that the other provisions of the code, some of the other provisions of the code will also apply in a whitewash transaction, including the prohibition on break fees. 
If a company's in extreme financial distress, is there any scope to get a waiver from the requirement to obtain shareholder approval, given that timing might be critical in that scenario? Yes, thanks, Antonia. It is. And that's one of the ones we referred to um, before. Because if the situation's so bad that the only way the company can be saved is by an urgent rescue operation where there isn't time to obtain that independent shareholder approval, the panel may grant a waiver. And that's either if, one, the approval for the rescue operation is obtained from the independent shareholders as soon as possible after that rescue operation is carried out, or secondly, some other form of protection to independent shareholders is put in place, and that's got to be satisfactory to the panel. That said, it's pretty rare for that to be the case. Uh, And the panel will investigate how distressed the company is, for example, by making inquiries of creditors as well as the company's directors. We are aware of one previous example where the panel executive had granted a dispensation for a rescue transaction, and that was way back in 2004, and the rules have been tightened since then. Uh, For interest, that case involved a bridging loan given to Ronson PLC, which was in severe financial difficulties at the time. The loan was given by Amy Holdings. Amy, in turn, was connected to an existing 30.51% shareholder and non-executive director of Ronson. The bridging loan was to be repaid by the proceeds of the open offer, And Amy had also agreed to underwrite the open offer and hence the need for the Rule 9 dispensation. Amy wasn't prepared to make the bridging loan at all if a vote of the independent shareholders was required. And so in that situation, the panel executive granted a dispensation to remove the need for an independent shareholder vote. I think interestingly, that was challenged by a number of Ronson shareholders at the time, but they weren't successful. Thanks, Greg. And of course, it's important to remember that there'll be a whole host of other issues beyond the code that that a company needs to think about in that situation, including, for example, its obligation to disclose inside information under the market abuse regulation. And if it's a premium listed company, the rules on controlling shareholders in the listing rules, which might require a relationship agreement and other protections to be put in place. Thank you, Greg, for joining me today. And thank you to you to our listeners. If you have an interest in distressed M&A transactions in a wider context, we recently had a webinar where we discussed these and the webinar is available on the Catalyst pages on our Herbert Smith Freehills website. We'd welcome any feedback or thoughts you have on our podcast and areas you'd like to see discussed in future episodes. Otherwise, we look forward to you joining us for our next one. Thanks very much.